0: You're listening to Vernacular Podcast.
1: All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. This is episode three of season six. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And this this episode is another roundtable episode. So you've heard these before. We like to have our contributors on from time to time, and we'll each bring an article or a topic to the table to discuss and we'll have at it. So uh, this roundtable, it's a little smaller. We have two of our contributors with us. First, Ishan Nath. Ishan is a PhD student at the University of Chicago. And second, Kevin Boschman. Kevin is a we call him our classics expert. He is, uh, he's an enthusiast for all things classics-related, and you might pick up on that given his contribution to the discussion today and his article selection. We'll get to that. So, Kevin and Ishan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you. Good to be back.
1: Great to have you guys back. Uh, Ishan, I want to start with you. I want to kick it over to you to talk about your contribution. What article are we talking about today?
2: Uh,
3: so it was a Vox article about how... The primary explanatory factor in the 2016 election isn't, you know, all these weird <laughs> things that happened with Comey and uh, Republican presidential candidate that said a lot of like really nasty stuff, and the Democratic candidate who, you know, the FBI was looking at, and all those things were the big events we focused on. But really, what was crazy about the election is how normal it was, in the sense that. All the Republicans voted for the Republican candidate and all the Democrats voted for the Democratic candidate, even though it was sort of a historically weird Republican candidate who probably wasn't even a Republican and sort of hijacked the political party to maybe in a direction that a lot of people previously wouldn't have liked. Right. And so the article is basically about how partisan identity is sort of our core American identity these days and people perceive all events through the lens of which team they're on and are willing to go along with things that they might normally not go along with and endorse things they might not normally endorse if it's the thing that their team is endorsing. And so that was the article basically in a nutshell. And I actually have a story that frames this conversation well, I think. Uh, so today on the day we're recording this podcast, there was this Really awful event this morning where uh, there was a mass shooting at uh, baseball practice for Republican congressmen, right. congresspeople in D.C. And uh, so I, I'm not, I'm not like a person with a lot of big Twitter following or anything. It's usually I just talk to my friends about things on Twitter. But uh, I sent out a tweet that happened to get retweeted by one of my friends that has a lot of followers, and so I ended up interacting with all these random people on Twitter today, which was somewhat unusual for me and it was incredibly disheartening cuz basically my tweet i thought was incredibly innocuous to the point of like almost not worth tweeting cuz it's obvious i just tweeted <laughs> right. we we are all republican congress people this morning yeah uh which is like
1: just a thing that you sort of say
3: that's right. kind of uniting you yourself
0: about. with the victims so yeah, you I mean, didn't you didn't mean shocked. it
1: literally obviously you were <laughs> just expressing sympathy yeah. Or oh, Did you?
3: <laughs> and somehow the replies to this tweet were like very negative, and some of them were pretty <laughs> nasty about like no, never, uh, and some of them straight into like some pretty bad victim blaming territory of like it's their fault they got shot because wow. they won't pass gun laws. Wow. Uh, so that was pretty terrible, and it just got me thinking about how uh, I really do think. It's true broadly and I think the resistance to the Trump administration is starting to make me think about this more in a day-to-day sense that uh, it's not – it's never been clear to me that we have like more radical elements on either political side of the political spectrum. It just seems to me that the radical elements have like become much more powerful in one of our political parties and it seems that that might be starting to happen in the other political party and – the monopoly on like things that are really ugly. Uh well, monopoly is like too strong and obviously shows my bias, but uh I think that the like the ugliest elements of politics are starting to crop up from everywhere right now.
0: Yeah, and maybe in part because of our perception of the other side, not even so much that there is more radicalization on the other side, but that our perception is such that there is, and so we're more fearful.
3: That might be true. I think there's like a perception element to everything. Uh, I think it is true that there hasn't been like a major democratic candidate like Trump in our recent, like
1: in our our lifetimes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, at least I can't think of one in my lifetime. I'm pretty sure there hasn't been one. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so back to this Vox article, I, I liked how, uh, Ezra Klein framed it. Um, and this, Ezra Klein is of course the founder of Vox. So this is kind of flagship Klein for you. So Klein's background, of course, is as a policy wonk and he outlines the traditional models for explaining voter behavior and at the center of his article is this new book by democracy by two academics um called demography for I'm sorry <laughs> democracy for realists um these two academics being uh let me find them i see their last names i'm just trying to find their first names larry bartels and christopher Aiken, uh, a- achen a c h e n um, so they've written this book called Democracy for Realists, and it basically tears to shreds the uh, kind of liberal li- liberal paradigms to explain voter behavior um, and instead argues, as Ishan pointed out, that people just choose based on identity. And so in those authors view, the election was pretty standard, the Democratic and was reading Klein here, the Democratic candidate won 89 percent of Democratic voters the Republican candidate won 90% of Republican voters. The Democrat won minorities, women and the young. The Republican won whites, men and the old. The Democrats won a few percentage points more of the two-party vote than the Republican has happened four years before and four years before that. If you had known nothing about the candidates or conditions in the 2016 election but had been asked to predict the results, these might well have been the results you would predicted. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting because he makes it sound not too, uh, not too unique.
3: So I guess a broad question to frame, I was just kind of looking for people to give their visceral reactions, but maybe to prod it a little, is just uh, like, how should we affect, how should the, How should we think about how this affects what we do in our own lives? Or like, what is our role as citizens that we play in these broader phenomena? And how should we use that to think about what we're doing?
2: Right. I mean, I think it's it's an interesting question. It's certainly... Um, One of my impressions when I I first started reading this article was the first thing that I found surprising was that this was somehow a surprise. That he, I mean, it it was a very, from a a policy won perspective, this sort of surprise that, you know, the average person isn't interested or doesn't get involved in, you know, the optimization of the marginal tax rate. (laughs) I mean, people who, that's that's so boring. Who cares? And it was just sort of strange to me that it was this conversation about how people would. Um, th- there was a surprise that people would rather or, or are more inclined to vote in go vote with their identity. identity, yeah, right. With the, which is something that's it's immediate. It's it's immediate, and and I think human nature tends towards immediacy. Yeah. So I mean, if we wanted to talk about this as sort of a problem that we would need fixing, then it, it has to be something. Where you're talking about how do you shift an identity away from a group of people to or, or a small group of people or or a group of people who i mean for for lack of a better way of phrasing this who identify with one another how do you expand the identity group to say you know all american citizens or you know the, the term citizens of the world gets thrown down all, around all the time but I think that's really the, the, the foundational question that's being asked here is maybe not so much how are you, you going to get you know everyone interested in marginal tax rates because I just don't see that happening, but how do you encourage people to expand their identity beyond the close sphere of interest that they encounter on a, a day-to-day basis? I, I, and I think that's, that's, that's going to be a challenge if that's the goal.
0: Yeah, I thought the concept of identity amplification was really interesting. And that's what Ezra Klein mentioned, that um, there's this New York Times article that talked about identity amplification, which has become more prevalent as people cluster themselves into these kind of enclaves of like-minded, homogenous people. And I think, I mean, that's part of the problem, is that we are talking to the people who are like us. We are living with the people who are like like us, working with people who are like us, and and not really reaching outside of those comfortable spheres. So, I mean, if there's a solution, I guess, on a small level, then one would just be to diversify your circle of acquaintance.
1: Yeah, I think that's a big one. And just real quick, uh, on that that point that Sally brought up, the identity amplification, Klein quotes a journalist at the Times named Amanda Taub. And I've been reading a fair amount of her stuff lately, and she does really, really good work. So I highly recommend um, reading more of her stuff. Amanda Taub, T-A-U-B. She runs – this is kind of beside the point, uh, completely beside the point. But she runs a foreign policy newsletter with Max Fisher also at The Times that uh, I find very interesting. So look up Amanda Taub's work when you get a chance.
2: Kind of uh, relating some of that back of what Sally said kind of – Also, something Ishan that you you mentioned earlier, where you know on your Twitter feed you had these incredibly these visceral responses and and these very uh, like kind of ugly, vicious responses to that message and this sort of identity uh, this identity sphere is uh, Ishan. You you shared another article that was in the, the National Review, and one of the striking portions of that. Was sort of the graphic about halfway through. I, I'm just speaking from memory right now. I, I don't remember exactly, but there was a graphic in there where it was what basically words uh, different political party members would use to describe members of the other party. Yeah, and what's so fascinating about that is they're all their words like unintelligent, closed-minded, dishonest, immoral, dishonest. Exactly, and it's, lazy. We, we've reached this point unfortunately maybe it hasn't changed maybe it's 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 just human nature reasserting itself but this idea that when we encounter someone we disagree with the first response um isn't to say well this is just someone i disagree with and we can have a conversation and advance our dialogue and maybe advance our understanding our mutual understanding of the world the first response is well that person's dumb yeah,
1: I was I was pretty disheartened by these figures that you're bringing up, Kevin. So 46% of Republicans say that Democrats are more lazy than other Americans. 47% say Democrats are more immoral. On the Democratic side of things, 42% of Democrats say Republicans are more dishonest than other Americans. 70% say they're more closed-minded than other Americans. So we do have this, this really big problem of... Um, Otherizing the other side, I think, and and uh, discarding them and their views.
3: Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna advance one slightly different line of reasoning that's maybe aiming a little lower. Uh, So I totally agree that uh, this division. Obviously, I shared these articles, so I think this division's like a big problem, and I agree that diversifying our friendships ideologically is like really important. Uh, but I think given that this negative polarization exists and people discount what people from the quote-unquote other side say so much, I think that only heightens the responsibility of people to police their own side. And in some sense, I think there's like an optimistic message you can find in between all the horror of the graphics in these two articles, which is that like leadership actually matters in the sense that if people's opinions are so sort of – you know, uh, loosely formed on so many issues, uh, and they're really drawing cues from the team they've decided is their team, then it really matters what the leaders of their team are saying. And if, if we're going to have two sides that are not getting along and not working together, that the degree to which they're saying things that are dangerous and harmful is definitely like, it's not all created equal. And, uh, you know, if, Ben Sass is out there standing up to. This is getting into the stuff in Kevin's article, so this is maybe a good transition. Uh, but when Ben Sass like stands up to the Trump administration's destruction of norms, or uh, you know, if in our own lives we're calling out people who are speaking hatefully about other people uh, or things like that, it seems like if Americans are going to categorically disregard things that people from the other political parties say. Then, the only people who have the power to police you know hurtful or harmful behavior or rhetoric are the people already on your own side, right. so we should all like be on the lookout mm-hmm. for things that people who might be amenable to actually listening to us are doing that we can like constructively critique
1: The worrying thing to me is that the trend seems to be moving in the opposite direction, that there's basically just escalatory rhetoric from political leadership on both sides of the aisle that is driving people further apart rather than closer together?
2: I think that's true. I think, though, uh, so each one, I think that the point you just made is a fantastic one. And it's one even um, to some degree that comes out in a Vox article, right? When they start talking about identity and identity or identification of the tribe or the group, the that crowd with their leader and about how a lot of times rather than associating with ideas about best government practices or economics or uh, the recession or whatever it is, a lot of times people latch on to a personality and to a leader and if that personality that leader has a positive influence on the rest of the group, then um, it's exponential and it multiplies and it it permeates the group. Uh, So I think your point is, is a very good one.
3: Yeah. And I'm usually someone who thinks of politicians as sort of like lemmings who all are walking in the same direction, playing for whatever team they're on. So this is kind of like a change of thinking for me that this is bringing on.
0: What did you guys think about, um, and so in the National Review article written by David French, he said, some. He, he offered a kind of macro level solution, which is to deescalate national politics. And remember that we are a federalist society, that we're built on this idea of, you know, more local or state based politics. Um, And so he said that as long as we kind of protect the basic rights of American citizens that and the Bill of Rights, we should just let he says, let California be California, let Texas be Texas. He didn't really elaborate on that idea of what he's actually suggesting beyond remember federalism. What did you guys think of that? Did you think that was a helpful comment?
3: I think there's like a world in which we could imagine that being re- a really productive solution to people having extremely different visions of what society should look like. You know, if California moves to like single payer health care and uh, some other like really red state institutes, the Republican healthcare care plan, and you might have this idea where people can sort of choose. Uh, but I think so. I, I'm an economist by economist in training. Uh And I think that we just don't observe enough migration for a vote with your feet model to be one in which I can imagine a lot of people not getting really trampled on as the minorities in whichever state goes in like one direction really far. Uh, So I worry that, uh, you know, if the Rand Paul vision of America becomes the government in Kentucky, there's going to be a lot of people who are – need Medicaid in Kentucky and can't move to Illinois where they like expand Medicaid a lot or something.
0: Yeah. I think that's a good point. And I think too that we're far from people getting to the point of not caring about national politics anymore and just being content with whatever their state is doing. Um, I think most people are concerned about what's happening on the broad scale and they, they want to fix that first.
2: Yes, I I really like what you just said, which – so to preface, I think the the whole – the Federalist idea, I think it's great. I love it. It's wonderful. It's what – when you read the Federalist papers, at least in my interpretation of it, it's kind of the beauty and the genius of the system as it was put in place, which was bringing 13 disparate colonies together and producing – Uh, political compromise that allowed them to retain enough individual liberty to have a federal system that would accommodate them all individually. Uh, But I like what you just said in that we've sort of, we've moved to a point in sort of the political development where that doesn't seem feasible or possible. So I think a lot of times when people propose these sort of macro-level solutions, they sound great. And it sounds like, oh, we're going to get back to the way uh, the Constitution was intended in that sort of political or structural sense. But I think, you, you know, we look at the typical cycle of politics and once power, and especially in the executive and especially at a, a federal level, has expanded and as such, the interests of the population kind of expand or, or migrate up to that higher level. Um, and then coming back again to sort of my, my classical political theory roots, we're kind of at, at a point on the cycle of political development where we are um, the, the cycle doesn't go backwards. It goes in one direction and we'll swing around the circle and, and then we'll have another go at it. But <laughs> and it might be cynical, but. Well, speaking so, yeah. of
1: your classical roots and historical cycles, Kevin, let's talk about your article contribution that Ishan already mentioned. So it's called Roman Fever by Rob Goodman and he explores some of the parallels between America today and Rome before its uh, descent into chaos or I guess sort of during its descent into chaos so can you can you briefly summarize this for us Kevin and how it relates
2: Absolutely, and I, and I will be brief because I, I, I tout myself to be a classical enthusiast, but I really don't know a whole lot about Rome. I know I'm more of a Greek guy, but this article is fascinating to me, and especially with Rome kind of being, in a lot of people's eyes, viewed as uh, one of the models that our society, our, our early American society, was built on. But really, the the crux of this article that that Rob Goodman has written, Rob Goodman, a former uh, speechwriter for um, Chris Dodd, among others. Uh, this is kind of a, an article that is taken from the thesis of a book that he co-wrote. But essentially, the point he's trying to make is that in Republican government, whether it's Roman Republican government or uh, American Republican government, of course, this is Republican with a kind of a lowercase am talking about the structure of the government. But in a Republican government, norms matter a lot. And there are obviously Written rules that are out there, written rules that say how you can behave in certain settings or how the structure of government works. But there are also unwritten rules that um, are customs, courtesies, uh, understandings, mutual understandings between uh, political elites or political actors that even if you can do something technically by the rules, you don't do it because – Precedent says you don't, and precedent, uh, far from being sort of this thing that shackles and bounds us, is actually a a very wise, uh, well-developed construct of practices that guide uh, the wiz- or, or guide us with the wisdom that has been developed over a period of time. And so, some examples uh, you talk about back in the fall of or the decline really of the Roman uh, of the Roman Republic into Empire, and this feud between uh, Cato the Younger. And Gaius Julius Caesar. Gaius Julius Caesar quite probably the best known Roman of all time, thanks to Shakespeare. Right. But this feud between the two of them, and as this feud went back and forth, they essentially escalated. It was this escalation where they started doing things that it was just understood and the Romans said in the Roman government, you just don't do these things. So the execution of these political prisoners without trial. You just didn't do it. You didn't do it because it was it was it was Bad practice. It wasn't done in the past. It was viewed as even if the law would allow you, because these people committed treason, you don't do it. It's just it's too far, bridge too far. And and he and Goodman says this is kind of a distant mirror and it's not an exact replication, but it's easy to see some reflections of that in our in our society or our government now when we talk about brinksmanship and shutting down the government and not passing budgets and holding nominees whether it was you know merrick garland or nominees in the trump administration now are kind of sitting in limbo and it's just not good practice even though you can do it even though you can filibuster forever even though then you can revise the rules so filibusters can't happen anymore all these sorts of things technically you can do them but you don't and the reason you don't is because once you violate those norms Uh, you have undermined the very structure of government and it's just not going to function right anymore. And that's kind of the crux of his argument. And just sort of the question that emerged out of this, because he makes this point, uh, I think, very compellingly, but with any argument, there's bound to be problems that people will see in it. So I'm just wondering, do you all think that he's kind of done justice to this Has, is it properly characterized is he too strong Are norms not as important as he says are they actually more important than he says uh, and that's just kind of uh, where i saw this conversation going maybe
1: yeah I, I think that they are just as important as he says um and i think he outlines a persuasive case for why that is um I'll read a couple things here that caught my eye in this article. The first was uh his description of um as you already pointed out kevin uh that it's a distant mirror so uh we've see we've heard over the past um uh, probably a lot over the past seven months or so um and a lot more uh, even before that, but a lot of comparisons between America and Rome in its decline um but he points out in this article that it doesn't need to be. Uh, a facsimile, so it's not. Exactly. It's, it's not an exact yeah. copy. History is indeed a distant mirror. So I think that was a, a good point. Um, he also says, and I'll read here from his article: brinksmanship, nuclear options, and shutdowns are not unique to American politics. The Roman, the Roman Republic's final years were increasingly prone to political conflicts so intractable that they left the, that they left the government paralyzed." And then he uh, has some just really interesting history lessons in there for, especially someone like me who's not too familiar with the decline of the Roman Empire. Um, But there was a line that I'm looking for here where he basically talked about how, uh, and you said, Kevin, all of these things that the Romans did were legal, just like eliminating the filibuster option or um, uh, getting rid of the supermajority requirement for for confirmations. They may be legal, uh, but there are norms against them. And the problem is that they normalize a state of crisis politics. And I'm pretty sure that verbiage is somewhere in here. I'm just having trouble finding it. But the problem is that they normalize a state of crisis politics. And once you normalize that, it's really, really hard to to escape. I think even though I said that history is a distant mirror, I agree with that. I think it's good to point out that history is not uh, – we're not doomed to repeat history. Um, I am skeptical of our ability to escape this normalized state of crisis politics that I think we have indeed found ourselves in.
0: Yeah, I thought one of the great points that he made um, was – that uh, the kind of focusing on the doom mongering, as he called it, um, in in this era of Roman history, and how the biggest problem, ultimately, the biggest thing that we can take away from Rome is that um, is just kind of fixating on this idea that our republic is perpetually one small step away from tyranny, and focusing on that is actually going to lead us down that road more so than even if it were true. Um, and I just thought that that was. That was a really good point because and I don't know if this is a good time to transition to our next article sure. but but just focusing on on the division and focusing on the identity politics and focusing on the breaking of norms um to a large degree just creates this anxiety, and that's kind of where the article that Zach and I found in the New York Times just from last week um comes in and the, the point of that article is how and why anxiety is like the new depression. In the 1990s, depression was um, a common disorder, and um, Prozac was frequently prescribed, and today it's anxiety and Xanax. The article says that this diagnosis of anxiety is more than just a medical disorder. It's actually a sociological condition that's fed by alarmist news media, by social media, by things like heart rate monitoring and and just our smartphones, the fact that we're always connected, um, and I think it's it's helpful to read. The article, like Ezra Klein's, um, where he he says, you know, this is this is actually not unusual. <laughs> We're kind right. of freaking out about politics right now, but it's actually not unusual. And, um, and
1: and I think it's important to draw the draw the connecting line between what Ezra Klein in Vox calls identity amplification, drawing on the work of Amanda Taub at The Times, like we discussed. So identity amplification and the uber connectedness to social media. That drives this anxiety. There was a, an interesting vignette. So the article that Sally brought up, by the way, it's called "Prozac Nation is Now the United States of Xanax." It's by Alex Williams in the June 10th edition of the Times. And in it, there's a story from uh, somebody who gives a a vignette uh, of waking up in the middle of the night and seeing a like a news alert on your phone, and it's a is a breaking news alert of some sort. And he mentions even today I got a breaking news alert about the uh, the Arctic ice shelf melting, like it's terrifying, you know, that has catastrophic implications potentially. And I'm getting up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom and, oh, I'm being reminded, oh, guess what? The world could be ending in your lifetime because the Arctic ice shelf is collapsing. Uh, so we have this this problem with always being in tune with the most doom-mongering descriptions of our current situation uh, and this constant connectedness to other people too that I think feeds anxiety. There's another vignette in here about uh, actually it opens with this story about a social media consultant who uh shared a story about how she texted a friend that didn't hear back for a day, so she concludes that uh basically they don't want to be her friend anymore. Um and she's saying it sort of tongue in cheek. But that's what that's what social media does, right? That's and it, it also drives the identity amplification because you end up uh, talking
0: to people who are like you. Right. You and create they're...
1: your own your own social filters, basically.
0: Yeah, I thought this was a great article. I thought that um it was it kind of hit on all the different aspects of our society that feed this generalized cultural anxiety that almost no one is immune from even if you you know you're not walking around being anxious at every given moment all the time there's always something that you are worrying about and it's in part due to all of this technology and and i think One thing that I'm wondering is, you know, what what is contributing to this cultural anxiety? Is it because – do you think that she's right? Was it a woman who wrote this article?
1: I don't know, actually. Okay, (laughs) I'm not sure. Alex, they could go either way. Yeah, I'm not sure. Alex Williams. But was
0: the author correct that technology plays a big part in this? And is he or she just kind of harping on technology to too great an extent? Um, And – but if – if not, if technology is kind of one of the root causes of this anxiety, then what can we do about that?
2: Definitely definitely a tough question, I think. Uh I'm not. I mean, I'm not willing to say that and I'm, I I not I'm not saying that anyone else is saying this right now, but I not want to say technology is the root of all our anxiety. Um, I think it certainly contributes to it a great deal, though, because just like you mentioned where, you know, you just constantly are bombarded with the negativity. On the flip side, you can open up Facebook and, you know, see kind of new adage that's emerged about how you see everyone else's life in a highlight reel. And so you're kind of bombarded with all this bad news, bad news, bad news. And then you go on Facebook and you see people, you know, say, oh, I got a new job. I got promoted. Oh, this great thing. These great things are happening to me. Right. And I made a great dinner know, tonight. It is good because you know part of the response is to feel happy for those people, but when you compare that kind of the highlights in other people's lives to you know the steady state of your own with that which comes with its ups and downs, but when everything else seems either apocryphal or or heavenly bliss, and your life can compare to neither of those, I, I think that certainly contributes to a degree of anxiety.
1: Definitely, yeah. I mean, you you. Might find yourself worrying about the uh, Arctic ice uh, shelf collapsing, and then you go on Facebook, and all of your friends' lives are super dandy, and there's a mismatch between those two things, and so that would definitely contribute, I think, to some some generalized anxiety.
2: The uh, the sort of conception that gasp, you might be average. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, the art. Yeah, the article talks about um, this phenomenon in our generation of not meeting expectations that we have these standards that we're trying to reach, whether in education or our jobs or family life. And we compare ourselves to other people and feel like we're not, we're not getting there. We're not living up to whatever these expectations are that have been put on us or they put on ourselves.
3: This is the part of the article that really resonated with me. I think, uh, the technology stuff I'm not super convinced about in the sense that like, it might be true, but I think it's, Uh, I don't really see any evidence that would meet sort of the burden of causality uh, that would convince me. Uh, It just seems it's just the people that use technology might also be more anxious. So it's just a hard question for me to sort of disentangle causality on. But uh, definitely this part of people always trying to compare themselves to each other is something that I've been actually thinking about a lot, uh, even before I read this article. And I think it's kind of what makes me – this is kind of a controversial predi- position to take in 2017, but I'm like super pro participation trophy in the sense that uh, I think it's like important that we we promote self-esteem that's unconnected to accomplishment and uh, try to find ways to make people feel valued just for being people rather than because they like did X, Y, or Z that society is like arbitrarily placed high value on. Uh, and so I think that this... You know there's a lot of there's a lot of underlying causes and entangled things going on with this anxiety thing, but I think one thing more broadly is just uh, with kids or even adults just trying to promote uh, I'm not sure exactly what word I'm looking for something like approval or just value of normalcy and just people who are being people and being good people rather than like accomplishing X, Y, and Z always being the goal.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I wouldn't consider myself to be pro participation trophy, but I agree with everything you just said that we need to help people understand that, that achieving the things that we arbitrarily place value on is not what's actually worth doing. So I would um, probably characterize my my own position as something like, uh, wanting to reframe the way people think about human flourishing and reframe the way we think about what it means to be successful um but I would say i'm just not pro participation trophy because like I played baseball growing up, and uh even a nine year old kid is smart enough to know when a participation trophy is just a participation trophy and then it just becomes meaningless at that point and almost like it's a it's a negative hit to your self esteem when you realize that you 're not getting a real trophy you 're just getting a participation trophy. I maybe mean, I should. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But maybe I should no, clarify. Fine.
3: I'm rhetorically pro participation trophy. Right, I mean, right, no <laughs> literal participation trophy. I think I. Yeah, just,
0: finding it, way for people to to realize that they have value and dignity in and of themselves, and not because of absolutely. anything that they do right. or don't do. Right, it, and and that that I figured, I figured the, you
1: were. I figured you were uh, metaphorically in uh, pro participation trophy. I just bring up the literal example because I think. You can. I think you can stray too much to that where everybody gets a prize for doing everything because you uh, you want to recognize that everyone's equally good at, at things. And that's just not an accurate representation, representation of life. So it's better to f- help people find what they are good at and what can help them thrive. And if necessary, to reframe the way to think about what it means to thrive.
3: I think this is actually uh, where like our disagreement is substantive rather than uh, rhetorical in the sense that like, I think I've come to a point where like I think we should de-emphasize success a little bit, especially for kids, and overemphasize like respecting people who maybe are not succeeding in ways that are obvious.
1: No, I don't think we're disagreeing at all. I think uh I think I'm just saying that for example, like great inflation is not a good thing, but great inflation would be an example of everybody getting a, a trophy. But But we can also recognize that the kids who might not be able to get straight A's because they uh, have learning disabilities of some sort or uh, just can't keep up with the kids who are getting straight A's, we need to help those kids understand that they are very good at other things and they don't need to be good at school to be good in life. And the success can can look different.
2: Right. I think it's about kind of the compromise. I don't know if compromise is probably the wrong word, but the middle ground is – is celebrating the excellence in each person, but maybe not in sort of the arbitrary way that, you know, sports is the most important thing or school is the most right. important thing, but finding where human dignity really lies and celebrating that in each person and finding what makes that person um, both unique, but also how their human nature, how all our human nature um, unifies us in a way that transcends. Any individual excellence.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right to me.
2: Wow, I made compromise as a first.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean it was such a vicious
2: disagreement. It was it was
1: (laughs) it was really bad. Um I wanna read a couple things from this New York Times article before we uh wrap it up um with our, our final Uh, thoughts on this first so Alex Williams I did find out uh, that is a male reporter for the New York Times Um, he writes it was 70 years ago that the poet WH Auden published the age of anxiety a six-part verse framing modern humankind's condition over the course of more than 100 pages and now it seems we are too rattled to even sit down and read something that long or as the internet would say (laughs) too long didn't read I thought that was pretty accurate and I'm sure you guys have seen these fidget spinners right these are the new craze yes yes I tried using one a few months ago, and it, it was kind of addicting and, and satisfying in a strange way, but this is William's take on it. Consider the fidget spinner, endlessly whirring between the fingertips of Generation Alpha, annoying teachers, baffling parents. Originally marketed as a therapeutic device to chill out children with anxiety, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or autism, these colorful daisy-shaped gizmos have suddenly found an unlikely off-label use as an explosively popular toy, perhaps this generation's Rubik's Cube. But the cube was fundamentally a cerebral, calm pursuit, perfect for the latchkey children of the 1980s to uh, while away their lonely Xbox free hours. The fidget spinner is nothing more than nervous energy rendered in plastic and steel, a perfect metaphor for the overscheduled, overstimulated children of today as they search for a way to unplug between jujitsu lessons, clarinet practice, and advanced placement tutoring. Wow. <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> Uh, but not wrong.
0: <laughs> two two points. I also learned that Alex Williams is a man, and I didn't realize this, but he is Alex, who is married to Joanna Goddard. Who, if anyone knows. The blog Cup of Joe. She is the author oh, of that. Oh wow! So yeah, there's not a, another connection that has nothing to do with our conversation. Cool. But about our <laughs> conversation, <for> that aside. <laughs> I wanted to go back to the technology point. Yeah, I agree um, with Ishan that it's hard to tell if you know people are anxious because they're on technology too much, or if they're on technology too much because they're anxious. But I think that it is worth considering ways that we can kind of disconnect a little bit more and unplug more than we already are because. It, I think it's clear that at least it's contributing to existing anxiety, and so for the people who find themselves um you know in in a state of anxiety or just overwhelmed by all of the comparison in social media or the alarmist news media that kind of disengaging from that is not is not a bad thing
1: and there's data to back this up right right
0: yeah that it's not it's not um it's not a virtue to always be connected all the time and to always know what's going on all the time. I think sometimes we can even compare ourselves with one another based on how much we know about what's going on in the world. And maybe it's not the most important thing to know everything that's going on in the world all the time if it's making you more anxious on a day-to-day basis. Um I I had also mentioned um, offline that there was this REI blog post that talked about the nature fix, which was this idea of going out into nature without your phone for three days in order to boost your neural, I guess, con- connectivity or yeah, something. Yeah, creativity. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't talking about anxiety specifically, but I can imagine that that would also help diminish anxiety. Um, and so I don't think we all have the opportunity to go out into nature for three days without our phone. Um, not, I mean, maybe that's something to shoot for. But I think having technology breaks can be a good thing yeah. or, um, you know, deciding to put your phone in a drawer so, for a certain amount of time during the day so that you can just focus on whatever it is you're doing at that moment.
1: And the data in this blog post was pretty surprising. There were two studies cited both pretty similar in design, but they basically would administer tests to a control group of people and a, another group of people who would go outdoors and be disconnected for at least three days and there their before and after results to compare. And basically, the outdoors groups would score about 50% higher on a certain test designed to, to, uh, to test your sort of creativity and mental cognition. So 50% on that test apparently was pretty big, according to the researchers, and it just supports Sally's point that it's probably good to disconnect every now and then.
0: Yeah, and I think it shows a level of just self-control to not feel like you need to be always connected all the time. And maybe that, maybe we just need to kind of take our own temperature on that and not say full stop technology is bad, but maybe you can just kind of assess your own relationship with technology.
3: Wow, you guys uh, really know too well how to convince me of something. Just to find a randomized control trial. <laughs> That's talk right. About it. Uh, I I do think there's probably some heterogeneity in what calms people. I think uh, I feel pretty calm when I'm watching baseball on TV, which I'm too. not sure if that counts as technology. Yeah, but I'm well, also I don't think make-
0: baseball is the kind of thing that most people get too anxious about. But maybe I mean sports. Whoa, I guess. That, I guess. Okay, never <laughs> mind. <laughs> I just realized that I was saying that. <laughs>
1: No, I mean, actually, I, maybe baseball is a weird example because
2: regular season game. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe regular
1: season alone.
3: <laughs> well, I think even if you're stressed about the game, it can still be a sort of meditative experience in the sense that you're focused on something that's not some other bother in life, and so oh, definitely, you might be like anxious about what's going on in the game, and it might still be like calming in the aggregate in the sense that you've forgotten about everything else you're thinking on, thinking about in your, yeah. the rest of the day. I also have one other slightly contrarian point to make, uh, Go for it. which is that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about not becoming anxious or, or like too overly anxious or sort of losing your ability to focus on important things in your life because you're too worried about like impending disaster in the world. Right. Uh, and I totally respect that. But I also think that there's like an important... I think it's commendable to care about things that are affecting people who aren't you. And uh, I think that I'm a big supporter of sort of like everyone should be able to find something they're angry about in the world that motivates them to do something about it. There's enough poverty and disease and injustice that there's like something that should anger everybody. And uh, in small or large ways, they can work or support efforts to right those wrongs
1: well said i think uh on that point we'll have to wrap it up because we're just about out of time but ishan and kevin thanks so much for joining us this evening to do another roundtable was a lot of fun and hopefully we'll get to do it again soon
3: awesome thanks so much for having us this was super fun for me too
2: good time good time y'all have a good one
0: All right. We're back to wrap things up with episode three. But before we do that, we wanted to remind you to head over to all of our social media pages and iTunes and just let us know how we're doing.
1: Yeah. Please give us a review on iTunes or at least uh, – even if you're not going to write something, at least give us five stars. <laughs> I'm just <kidding. laughs> Give us as many stars as you think we deserve, but seriously, five. <laughs> and uh, also check out our Instagram if you are an Instagrammer. At, at vernacularpod. Vernacularpod. That's also our Twitter Handle if you're a tweeter and Facebook, facebook.com/slash vernacular podcast.
0: You can email us at Zach and Sally at vernacular podcast.com.
1: And you should email us actually because we're getting ready to do a listener question episode later this season and we want to hear your questions. So anything could be uh, favorite foods, could be greatest fears, could be right. yeah, whatever you
0: want to ask us. This is our first time doing this kind of thing and we're Life to Life advice. It could be like a
1: Dear Abby type thing. <laughs>
0: we're excited to find out what you want to know so you can ask whatever you would like and we will compile the questions into an episode yeah
1: fun so Zach and Sally at Vernacular Podcast or just reach us through one of our social media uh, present presences I don't know accounts (laughs) I don't know Uh, yeah just say hi and ask a question also you can always go to our website vernacularpodcast.com listen to all of our previous episodes there or through your favorite podcast app I think that's it all right for the Pinnacle Podcast, I'm Zach.
0: And I'm Sally. Have a great week. You know that.
2: Feeling better than ever when I'm by your side.